Hello, and welcome to the Bregman Leadership Podcast. I'm Peter Bregman, and I believe that the best leaders don't try to do it alone. As the CEO of Bregman Partners, my mission for over 30 years and the mission of this podcast is to help successful people like you close your leadership gaps, grow as leaders, and inspire your team, inspire all the people around you to get great results. I'm here with Christine Carter. She's a sociologist and senior fellow at UC Berkeley's Greater Good Science Center, which is an interdisciplinary research center that translates the study of happiness, resilience, and emotional intelligence for the public. I love that. It's what she does so well in her new book, The Sweet Spot, How to Find Your Groove at Home and Work. She is a brilliant translator. She takes great research that's thoughtful, that's been done that is sometimes hard to incorporate into our lives, and she gives us a smooth path to incorporating it in our lives. It's one of the most important pieces of work that we can do. I'm lucky enough to have Christine with us here today. Christine, thank you so much for being on the Bregman Leadership Podcast. Well, thank you for having me. That was a very nice introduction. <laughs> um, tell us a little bit about The Sweet Spot, why you wrote it, and, and what you hope it does. Sure. Um, I wrote the sweet spot because I was having a, a little bit of difficulty with implementation of some of the all the research that I was um, translating. So I was the executive director of the Greater Good Science Center and had a very vibrant coaching practice. And I had just published Raising Happiness. So I'd sort of gone public with my incredible ability to raise happy children, right? You know, it was like I was just out there speaking all the time about how to be happy and raise happy children and run a happy organization. And um, and there was just one little problem, and that is that I was so tired. I was just exhausted. And that meant that I got sick a lot, not like big life-threatening illnesses, but I did have strep throat for about 18 months, right? I was just one course of antibiotics after the next. That's a long bout of strep throat. It is really, it did quite a number on me. And, you know, one morning I, um, it was a weekend morning and I was supposed to on Monday get on a plane uh, to Atlanta to give a, a talk to a very large organization. And I woke up. And my fever was a little higher than usual. And my husband had just sort of had it, right? He said, you know, I'm calling the doctor. And the doctor said, take her to the ER. Maybe that, they'll scare some sense into her. And um, so I went to the hospital. And in my heart, I, was, I kept thinking, oh, this is so great. I, I, maybe they'll admit me. Maybe <laughs> I'll have a really good excuse not to go to Atlanta, Right, because it's very hard, as you well know, to cancel on a speaking engagement. That's like the, that that was like the all-time low point of my career in a way. Right, like it's very a very difficult professional situation. To yeah, it's end. it's terrifying in many it's ways. It's terrifying. It's terrifying. So I was very upfront with the doctor that was examining me. Right, you know, I, I sort of said, I need you to admit me. I can't go to Atlanta. And so he came back and he's like, Well, I've got great news and I've got not so great news. And the great news is is that. We don't need to admit you. 
Um, but you know, you can't get on a plane Monday morning because you have a kidney infection, right? This so, is the this is the sort of professional equivalent of a doctor's note, and you can't go to school. Exactly, exactly. Right. Okay, well, so the irony of all this absolutely was not lost on me. I mean, I've since learned that hospital fantasies. I was having hospital fantasies, and these are a thing, right? I get more email about hospital fantasies. People who are like, I know exactly what you meant because. I get to have knee surgery next week and I'm going to be, I'm not even going to be expected to check my email for two weeks because of the painkillers, right? I love the, I love the language. I get to, I get to have knee surgery. (laughs) Right. right. This, our culture is so pathetic in that we don't even let ourselves rest unless we're in excruciating medicated pain. Right. You know, I, I, I mean, I have to say like I I experienced the same stuff and I, the, the, a few weeks ago I was really really sick. And I was sick, like to the point where I just like, I had to cancel my meetings. I couldn't, I had a fever. I just, I felt awful. Like I just really, and, and I was speaking to my head of operations and, and I was saying, you know, I'm really, I'm really sick. The only work I'm really going to be able to do is like writing and, you know, <laughs> like the home stuff, you know, like we could Skype. And the, she's like, you know, how about you actually just stop working for a day? <laughs> yeah. you know, like, how right. about like, you right. know, I'm like, well, you know, I could do my sick, like deathly sick work, but yeah, I can't that's do like gonna the. going to be high quality for Right. Yeah, work, exactly. Right? Like that's going to be your best writing ever. <laughs> right. Right. Exactly. Yeah. Well, so here I am, right? I, I've studied elite performance and productivity and now happiness for well over a decade at this point. You know, this is five or six years ago. And, uh, and I, so I, I decided that's the moment that the sweet spot was born. I thought, you know what? I got to road test this stuff better. <laughs> right? If anyone can be a, an elite performer, clearly it's me. I just need to know how to do it without giving up the thing that matters most, which is my health, right? Like I don't need to be taking years off my life. With this. So, so let me ask you a question, because it, it occurs to me in this conversation that, you know, there's a book that I fantasize about writing, uh-huh. which is, you know, I wrote 18 minutes and I've, I've written books on productivity and, 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 and the fantasy book I have in my head is titled some derivative of how to be unproductive. And, you know, like this idea that like, I feel for myself, like I push myself to be as productive as I can and do a lot. And I think there's some virtue that, are are like a certain element of our society that I'm in misses to some degree, which is the usefulness of being unproductive. Yes, and yeah. I don't exactly know why what I what I would write about it yet. <laughs> like, but I think there's something important there. Oh, that there is absolutely something important there, and there's something very subtle too. So there's kind of two concepts here, and the first is that some of the virtue in being unproductive comes from um, this this idea that we don't always have to make such a, a powerful effort that we can come to rely on our own effortless power, right? So that's not exactly unproductive, but it has that we the same sort of association. So it's the it's the sort of how how to accomplish more by doing less. Right? Yeah, and it's actually it's the it removes the driver yes. pushy managing yes. part of us, the struggle right. part of us. Right? Can I still be an elite performer and drop the struggle? 
Beautiful. That's the key question, right? Great. So the answer is yes, by the way. Great. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> that's the, it's been the whole aim of this last project for me and everything I'm doing now. And I've just created an online class called the how to the science of flow, right? Like that, right. and that's that being able to tap into that effortless power, right? People like you and I really good at making a powerful effort all the time. Right. That's it. That's the sort of almost it's almost easier to do that. In, in many respects, right? right? It's certainly more familiar. It's familiar. It's, we feel like we're in control. We feel like we can make it happen. You know, we, right. we feel like if, we if yep. right, exactly. Right. But then, but there's then a you tax. End up like there's me. a toll. Somehow you've done it better than I have. I, you know, you end up like me and like having your tonsils out and kidney infections and just ridiculous. I mean, it's just, it was absurd, right? I'm, I haven't been sick since though. So I'm, That's I've, great. I've gotten it. I've gotten it together. Rest assured. I've so share some of what you discovered in this project that can help. Cause I'm sure you and I on the phone, on the, on, on this interview are not the only ones and that the, a lot of people listening are facing the same, yes. same challenge. Yes, that. absolutely. Well, you know, you started to, so the other piece of the sort of virtue of, uh, being unproductive is kind of an interesting thing because there is, it, it's another piece of this that, it, that there is incredible virtue in just doing nothing, quote unquote, doing nothing. And that, and by that, I mean, letting your minds wander daydreaming, staring into space. You know, we assume that nothing is happening in this big brain of ours if we aren't focused and checking things off a list and, you know, like just getting things done. But actually, when you were sick laying in bed, if you just let yourself stare into space, what, and, and I had taken a brain scan of you, what we would see is that your brain was actually much more active than if you were focused on a particular problem. And active in the sense that like more brain regions were acted, active, both left and right parts of your brain, both the sort of primitive parts of your brain, the emotional centers, and the, you know, we, we just think that it's one particular thing. And, and that all that brain activity is connected. So what's happening when we're just daydreaming or staring into space when we assume nothing is going on is that our brain is making connections between things that it previously didn't see as connected. Now, it's related to all the data that's come in in the previous days or, you know, it's, it is related to what you've done beforehand. But for the most part, that is the birthplace of all creative insight. And nothing is easier or more powerful than a creative insight, right? So, so if you had some writing to do, for example, the best thing you could do probably is stare into space and do nothing. And then when you feel better, get up and do the writing because you would be able to draw on that, the power and the ease, which to me, those two things are the sweet spot, right? It makes total sense and it coincides with my experience. And and I remember, you know, probably the the article that I've written that's gotten the most immediate popular attention, it was the headline of certain places. Uh, you know, websites and was when I wrote um, why I returned my iPad. The iPad had just come out and I returned it because I no longer had any moments of boredom. And the, right. the, I remember, I think it was on AOL, the, the, the headline was man returns iPad in favor of boredom. And, <laughs> I love and, it. But it was like, I didn't have a moment anymore. Right. And I feel like 
even without the iPad, you know, with my phone, with like, we don't have moments. I can't tell you the number of times I go into a men's room and at least one hand is holding a phone, you know, like at the urinal, kind of texting. I mean, there's not a moment that we give ourselves Uh -uh. to just do nothing. And and then that really starts to impact our habits, obviously our habits, but then that starts to impact how we feel when we have those moments. So a decade ago, you could be fine going to the bathroom and only going to the bathroom, right? Not right. also reading your text. Right. But now we step into an elevator to, to maybe use a less gross example. Right? Sorry. <laughs> no. no, you know, and, and people actually feel anxious not checking, right? You, you Which can't basically means things. like that's the definition of an addiction, right? Yes. It's an addiction. Yeah. It's an addiction. It's our brain without all these devices anyway is terrifically novelty seeking. It always is going to be. The the human brain's drive for novelty is as strong as its drive for food, right? We don't realize that. And of course there is like a genetic component to it, but for the most part, it's a huge thing. And so if you have a source of novelty with you all the time, it, your brain is going to reward you constantly for doing that. And then you're going to end up in this place where you can't get any real work done, right? Because there's always something shinier right there. Well, you know, if you put these two things together, what you're saying is deeply profound, which is that ultimately our brain is, is novelty seeking. Yeah. And if we don't have the device in front of us, if we don't have the candy in front of us, then the novelty-seeking brain will look for solutions to difficult problems, will look for new ideas, will look to make connections between, you know, what we're experiencing and, and, and you know, and, and solutions. They're going to look because the brain's looking for novelty. It but will if, innovate. But if we give it the comic book instead, not to bang on comic books, comic books can be awesome. My son loves Captain Underpants. But if... Now, I don't know why I'm going to all these gross examples, but if, <laughs> but if, but if you, um, but if, you know, if, if you don't, if you have the sort of easy novelty seeking, if I'm, you know, playing a video game, which might be novelty seeking, then my brain is satisfied in the right. novelty seeking and they won't actually go for like the, the kale and the spinach. They'll go for the Reese's peanut butter cup. And in the end I'll be, you know, less happy and undernourished and, you know, ultimately anxious and unsatisfied. Right. I, I think that that is the, that's the thing that the effect that we're seeing the most is that people's overall tension levels go up, their stress levels go up. We're sort of, even though it's very rewarding to the brain to basically be under this form of stress, it's, it's terrible for our health and our happiness. And we end up in this perpetual cycle of overwhelm, right? We just feel like we have more to do than we have time to do it in. It's just not, it just creates this like feeling that, that um, is obviously not helping us fulfill our potential for joy or helping us enjoy the lives that we're working so hard to create, right? But it's also short circuiting our, you know, our potential for creativity and innovation. It's short-circuiting the most intelligent part of our brain, the part of our brain which is intuitive and wise. You know, we, we really value the conscious, focused effort so much, but the reality is the more powerful part of our brain is, operates at a more subconscious, intuitive level. And the, all this stimulation of devices numbs us to 
that part of our brain. So the part of our brain that operates intuitively, the source of wisdom and creativity and innovation is, it's wonderful. It speaks to us all the time. It just doesn't speak to us in words, right? It right. speaks to us in images and emotions and in body sensations. So when you take those three things out of your repertoire to listen to your intelligence, you're, you're basically making yourself dumb. You know, it's so interesting. And I think we don't value those intelligences in the same way that we value the intelligences that can articulate findings in words. And so I right. might have a feeling, but I can't describe the feeling. So I discount the feeling and I go, mm -hmm. you know, play on my iPad and then that removes the feeling. It kind of, it, right. cover, it doesn't remove the feeling. It, 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 it covers it up. It, it, it um, reduces the sensation in a way that may make me feel happier in the moment, but ultimately uh, vacuous. Yeah, I would actually argue too that it's probably not making you feel happier in the moment. It's probably making you more tense in the moment. And that we, we really conflate a sense of gratification and the activation of the reward system in our brain with an actual positive emotion, right? Mm -hmm. Happiness technically is an actual positive emotion. It goes with gratitude or awe or inspiration or love or whatever, all those positive emotions, right? And that's a very different physiological process in our brains and in our bodies. Then, but, but, but when we are reward-seeking or we doing these things that feel gratifying in the moment, we think we're becoming happier and we're not. And, the, and the, the primary, I mean, there's a lot of differences between these two processes. The interesting one to me is that you do something that is pleasurable or gratifying in the moment and it, it doesn't last and it will, it will actually leave you with a sense of craving or desire for more, right? That's the one of the primary functions of dopamine, which is makes it gives you that pleasure hit, but then it leaves you wanting more, craving. Right. And a positive emotion, you know, you get a little burst of profound gratitude for something that will leave you feeling happier Satisfied. over the course of a day, right? Yeah, it will, it, it will actually change your physiology in such a way that you will feel less craving, less desire. So help me. How do I get out of the sort of gratifying, seeking, but undernourished experience, but that's, right. you know, that's, that's hard to uh, uh, hold off or hard to, to discard? Um, to the one that um, is maybe takes more effort in a sense because you have to be more present mm -hmm. to it, mm -hmm. um, but is far more satisfying mm -hmm. and, and, and actually creates those emotions of happiness and gratitude mm -hmm. and awe mm -hmm. and all of that. Well, you know, I'm tempted to quote you, <laughs> <laughs> which I often do. I open the sweet spot with a quote from you. Um, I, you know, I think one of the, the things that this requires, this reaccessing our intuitive wisdom and all these things that we're talking about is emotional courage, hmm. right? It's you ha we need to be willing to feel whatever comes up for us. And you're right. At first it's a lot less comfortable, right? So we need to be, bring some willingness to feel uncomfortable or some comfort with that discomfort. Right. Cause there really is a detox period in my coaching practice. I take, I've been taking a lot of people through just sort of this very uncomfortable detox when your brain is like, no boredom will kill you. Right? <laughs> <laughs> 
right? You're not being productive enough. People are looking at you terribly, right? Like all this fear and anxiety and guilt comes up. And so the, the first step is let yourself feel whatever comes up, right? So actually the first step, let's back up. This is making the assumption that you're willing to take some breaks, right? right. You're willing to take some weekends off. You're willing to wait in line at the grocery store without checking your email, willing to go to the bathroom without texting somebody. You know what? Right? Now you're just pushing it. <laughs> we'll do the shopping. We'll do the grocery line. <laughs> no, okay. That's great. That's really you – know, right. so you have to be willing to like, do that. Create space and don't, don't rely on your willpower because it won't work, right? Like it's not – I know that you probably have the strength of 10 human beings, but – um, even 10 human beings cannot resist the little, you know, the device. So what do you know, we leverage there. if we're not leveraging willpower? What is it that we're leveraging? So, so, so you leverage your decision-making power ahead of time, right? So decide on some times and places. I mean, I could take you through a full detox, mm -hmm. but a simple way of starting it is decide on some times and places in which you will not check your phone and then make it impossible to do so, right? So I always say it's like, this is called the hide the bowl of candy technique, right? If you were trying to eat less candy, you wouldn't put it on your bedside table and reach into the bowl of candy first thing in the morning and then bring it with you to the bathroom and then <laughs> sit, sit it down next to you at breakfast and then um, put it and then put it on your car dashboard, right? <laughs> So I was just it's great. A, I love it. A, a magazine. So she, she's the executive producer of a magazine in New York, mm -hmm. right? She's a very busy woman who's very wedded to all of her devices and all the communication. Right. And it, and this is like, it's very hard to hide the bowl of candy. She could decide that she was going to give herself 10 minutes here and there, but you know, commuting, we had to like put the, we actually had to put the phone in the trunk, I, right? I, it's not, enough to turn it off and put it in the purse. I think that's exactly right. I mean, I'm a proponent of that. I think put it using your trunk that way. The problem with minivans is you can lunge in the back while you're still in the car and get it. But I, but I, I'm a proponent of that. I think that that's exactly right. Yeah. Right. So hide the bowl of candy. So decide when, when you're going to do it, hide the bowl of candy so that, so that it's actually not accessible to you. So you don't have to rely on your willpower because it will be too tempting. And you're making a distinction here that's really important that I want to underline because it, it, I think it could be missed, which is the, the distinction between willpower and a decision that ultimately when you, when you're using your willpower, it means that you're in the conversation with yourself. You want to, part of you is saying, I should do this. And the other part of you is saying, no, I won't do this. And you're back and forth. And almost, almost invariably, if you're in that conversation with yourself, you're going to lose. And what yes. you're saying is make the decision so that when the conversation comes up and they, you know, the part of you that wants to look at your phone says, should we look at our phone now? You're saying, I'm not even, I'm not even engaging in this conversation with you. Yeah, I had right. that conversation with you. I'm not even, with you. I'm not even talking it. to you. Right. Yeah. I, I talked <laughs> yeah. to you about this two hours, hours ago and the answer is no. Yeah. Right. Yeah. That's a profound that, That's exactly too. right. I mean, the other thing that you can leverage is other people around you, right? So it's really important to say, I am making a commitment to never check my phone or my computer during dinner time. And whether we're at home or whether we're out, that is my commitment. And so, you know, I mean, we do... I have four teenagers, right? We, they, they hold me to all the, I mean, there are a sure lot of do. times, <laughs> you know, because I'm always holding them right, to it, right. right? So, but then the third piece is what, kind of where we started, which is be willing to feel what comes up for you. Right. It, it's ugly at first. It just is. 
But eventually it gives way to this unbelievable relief, right? Like that, that it's, and relaxation, right? You, you will feel your shoulders drop back down again to just be able to drive in silence, or to just be able to go to the bathroom. I'm sorry, I can't get away from it. <laughs> I, I, yeah. It's a perfect example, right? right? It's because it's so absurd. Right, it's so absurd. Right? 30 seconds, we can't sit <laughs> without our, you know, like, and do do only one thing. Um, right. Yeah, it's, uh, you know, it, it's, um, I'm, I'm glad you brought up the emotional courage piece because I've actually spent the whole morning here working on that proposal. Uh, for It's going to be my next book is on emotional courage. Okay. So, oh, cool. and and I think there's a stage as you're talking that that I'm, I'm in a little bit that uh, around this, around the technology piece that is easy to miss because there's this stage between when I'm giving up my phone, you know, in every moment, in every crack and crevice of my life, I'm, I'm, I'm not using it in every crack and crevice of my life. I'm choosing when I'm going to use it when I'm not. And, and, and then there's the ultimate uh, end point where we're excited, you know, where we, we have joy. We have a sense of sort of quiet joy and peace that we're looking for. There's this middle stage that I find myself in sometimes where I'm letting my phone go but people around me aren't and I'm getting pissed off. Yes. I'm like, I'm frustrated. I'm annoyed. I'm like, why are you guys on your phone all the time? You know, but I'm not yeah. totally yeah. off of it yet. Like I'm, it's like, there's yeah. a jealousy, there's an envy, there's a questioning of myself, even like, should I, you know, everyone else is on their phone. I should be on my phone. Right. It's an interesting, it's like being an alcoholic and giving up alcohol yes. and then being in a bar and everybody yeah. else is drinking and it kind of makes it a yeah. little harder to do that. Oh, it makes it a lot harder. It makes it a lot harder. And so that's a part that's a part of where that emotional courage comes in. Like feeling so we call that you spot it, you got it. Like when I feel frustrated with other people because they're on their phone and I'm not, it's only because I actually would really like to check. Right? My brain is going, see, everybody else is doing it. What's wrong with you? You could just check because they're not talking to you anyway. Right? right? <laughs> like the whole the whole thing. So it is, it's bringing up something in yourself for you to look at, right? Like, but I, I, I actually think I got stuck in that stage for many, many years, just around email before we even had email on every device, right? I used to get frustrated with my family when they would work in my presence on the weekend when I was trying not to work right. because it triggered feelings of guilt right. for me. That's exactly right. So, That's exactly what it does for me. Right. So my suggestion is to work with the feelings of guilt, Right. So just notice, right? Instead of resisting it and sort of displacing your anger about the whole thing, going from just be noticing that you feel guilty about not working and then being able to sort of have a conversation with yourself about that, right? Like we know that it's actually going to benefit your work overall and anything you need to do. No, I love that. And I actually think it's, it's um, uh, you know, it, it gives you something to do. So rather than even convincing yourself or telling yourself, here's why you're doing this and this is better, your suggestion, which is to watch what goes on, to meditate in effect, to just sort of say, what's yeah. going on? What's the conversation that's going on? Why am I uncomfortable? Where am I feeling it? Why am I feeling it? What yes, is this yes. feeling of discomfort? 
that that gives me so when everyone else is on their phones now i have something to do and the yeah. thing that i have to do is actually quite productive which is let me see what's going on with me and my yeah. reaction to all of this and understand myself better and i'll use this opportunity when they get off their phone i will have learned something i will have you know like it, to to those of us that want to be productive in those moments that's a really usefully productive thing to do it, it is, and it and it's it's just a very high functioning thing to do as well. In the sense that if you resist an emotion that you're having, it will tend to get biz, bigger from a physiological standpoint. It will cause you more stress. It will, you know, what I mean, that our emotions don't go away just because we turn turn on somebody else and start instructing them, right? So it's it's a it's a phenomenal practice to just look inside and say, where in my body am I feeling this? Like get back in touch with that intuitive knowledge system. Use that as the the moment. Now what you will find is that it starts to dissipate more quickly. But you have to be careful in that, you know, so so a lot of my clients will do this. They'll they'll say, oh I did it. I surrendered resistance to how I was feeling. And I just looked at it with acceptance and curiosity, you know, and, um, and, and I wasn't, didn't feel so guilty and anxious. And then it happened again and it didn't work, right? <laughs> because, and here's the distinction, right? If you're, if you're truly looking at how you're feeling with acceptance and curiosity, that's a true surrender, right? You're not resisting. But if you are telling yourself you're, you're looking with curiosity and acceptance, because you want the feeling to go away, that's a rejection of it. Right. right? That's subtle and important. It's, it's subtle and it's, it is important. Right. So it's like, well, all right, we are just going to welcome all these difficult emotions because they're just such great teaching moments for us. I thought you were going to go somewhere else with it, which I've seen also, which is – um, look, I totally got this. Like I was able to not pick up my phone while everyone else did and I was fine with it. So next time when they pick up their phone, I'm going to pick up my phone too because I'm in control. And it's, yeah. you know, and it kind of like loops you back in. Not it's like so a much. trick. Yeah. It's like that little yeah. trick that gets you to yeah. like. Yeah, that's, a, that's akin to what researchers sometimes call the what the hell effect. Like the fun name for, the, for, it, for it is that. And, and we actually know that this is a common thing. Like if researchers give people vitamin C pills or they think that they're taking vitamin C pills like to smokers, smokers will smoke more, right? If you give somebody um, environmentally friendly cleaning products and then um, the, they become then more likely to steal and lie to the researchers later when given the opportunity to, right? So what we know, it's, it's um, well, actually I'm conflating two different streams of research. The what the hell effect is like we do one thing and then we just keep doing it. And I, what I'm actually talking about is moral licensing, right? We do a good thing once and we use it to then justify bad behavior. Right. And, uh, and so it's just something to be aware of, right. right? What do you, and always taking yourself back to what do you value? If you value innovation and happiness, then we give ourselves these moments of peace. Christine, it's such a pleasure to talk to you. I want to just keep going, and I'm sure we will keep going, but I like to keep these to, you know, 15 to 20 minutes. We're at we're basically 30 because I can't stop talking with you. But but I'm gonna <laughs> I'm gonna close it here. Um, Christine Carter, the book is The Sweet Spot, 
how to find your groove at home and work. Um, I'm sure you found her as brilliant as, as I do and all of her brilliance, a lot of her brilliance is in this book, The Sweet Spot. It's really worth a read and it's very sort of practical. If you struggle with any of the issues that we're talking about, um, she addresses them really beautifully. So Christine, thank you so much for being on the Bregman Leadership Podcast. Thank you for having me. It's been a ton of fun. Thanks for listening. Here's what I've learned from working with some of the most successful leaders of the most successful companies. Every leader, every team, and every organization has a leadership gap. If you want to become a leader who inspires your team to get things done, then you've got to start by raising the level of your leadership abilities. You can start by taking our free leadership gap assessment at www.bregmanpartners.com forward slash quiz. Then dive deeper with a copy of my latest book, Leading with Emotional Courage. For more ways to become a truly great leader, check out our online offerings, in-person workshops and events, and my articles at www.bregmanpartners.com. Again, thanks so much for joining me today, and thanks to Claire Marshall for producing this episode. Be sure to subscribe so you don't miss an episode.